This is Charles Ruas. You're about to hear my interview with playwright Tennessee Williams, recorded in 1975. This program was first broadcast on WBAI in New York. Bill Lynch, the director of Tennessee Williams' later plays, in the bar of a Tokyo hotel, Outcry, a two-character play. This is Charles Ruas. I'm interviewing Tennessee Williams and Bill Lynch about their production of Tennessee Williams' play Outcry. The first question I have is, why do you call it an unproduced version of Outcry? Because this is a version of the script that has not previously been produced before. The original version was produced, correct me if I'm wrong, Tennessee, was originally produced in London in 1967 by the Hampstead Theatre Club. This rewrite followed that and was never done. A subsequent rewrite was done in Chicago in late 71, and a subsequent rewrite to that was produced on Broadway in 73 under the title of Outcry. And it was put together. Mr. Peter Glenville, the director of that, took every version. There's been more versions than that, you know. Mm -hmm. He took all the versions, and he just arbitrarily took out whatever he thought he wanted from each one, uh-huh. and I had practically nothing to do with it. For instance, Jean-Vier Bougeau came down from Canada twice to read, you know, for the part of the girl. I was not permitted to hear her. Hmm. She was a perfect opposite mm-hmm. like York. Mm-hmm. You, know? you had no say-so in the casting at all? Nothing at all. But tell me, do you continuously rewrite your plays? Not continuously, no. <laughs> I'm How many versions of Outcry have there people. been? You've I guess there have four. been... Uh, well, the one in London was uh, the first version, and I went to London for it. It was in 67. Mm-hmm. And to tell you the truth, I was not in a condition to notice much going on. Why? I'd, I went... We don't go into these matters. Do we have <laughs> these Fixed matters not VAI. discreetly <laughs> mentioned? We can go into these matters. We can. <laughs> I'm perfectly willing to go into any matters, everyone knows. <laughs> yes, well, I didn't really, couldn't tell, judge it very much, and I behaved abominably. I was introduced to the director, and I said, you know, plays have to be directed. Then <laughs> 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 I was introduced to the designer, and I said, was that a set? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've had much happier experience. But you did give them what they deserved. Well, more or less. Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think I think a playwright should try to keep his cool, don't you think, under all circumstances, even with Mr. Merrick. <laughs> Did you like That's the, the production? Test. Did you <laughs> like? Indeed, it is the production. I couldn't really tell very much. It seems to have no relation to what I'd written. This was before the English became very experimental. Before Harold Pinter began to, you know, mm-hmm. wake him up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and then you rewrote the play for the Chicago production. The Chicago production was rather close. Uh, the text was rather close to this, but it was not edited. It was not cut. Mm-hmm. And uh, the great improvement to me, uh, one of the great improvements, aside from the direction itself and the performances, which are all three are brilliant, is that the play has been reduced uh, in size to its proper, you know, most uh, effective size. 
Didn't you say between a fourth and a third had we, been cut out? We cut a, between a fourth and a third of the script, of the original script that I got from you. Yes. I think I said uh, this might be a really major play if you cut a third of it out. <laughs> <laughs> and then in New York it was cut again? Well, as Tennessee just said, the version of Outcry that Peter Glenville did on Broadway was put together in bits and pieces by Peter Glenville from all the versions. More or less. And perhaps I'm why being is, slightly why, unfair why because that? he did consult me to some extent about mm-hmm. it, but I was so overawed, you know, by, uh, by the prospect of having a Broadway production for this little play, you know, <laughs> that I just kind of let him go ahead, you know? And... Uh, Things only got a bit uptight uh, when we got on the road, and uh, I felt that uh, I was not being allowed to uh, to cut and revise as I should on the road. The time seemed wasted. I, I must say that I'm astonished at how the text of the play seems to have an autonomous existence apart from the writer. Autonomous existence, apart from the writer. Yes, the fact that these directors, you know, cut. Yes, change, well, I tell you, uh, people associate my name with successes, you know, because they only know about the successes. But actually, I've had a many failures, you know. I've had a succession of failures, and uh, you have no idea how it reduces your power. I can't imagine what you mean by... uh, Well, you have less and less say when you're dealing with people who uh, are uh, dominating and aggressive. You have less and less control over your productions. But on the other hand, the love for your work is ever-growing. I'm not able to judge that very well. I I get a good deal of... Uh, letters, you know, from people who appreciate it, you know? But, uh, but I, yeah, do, I don't but get very good notices. But, don't you, <laughs> but doesn't it come through, in, for example, in the sales of the t- texts of the plays, etc.? Or the, yes, the fact that well, they're taught, or uh, whatever indication? Yes, but the, as I said, they're usually the ones that were successful, the earlier ones, you know, that uh, were more successful. I think one of the interesting things about the two-character play, which is the title under which we're doing it now, uh, is that it, like Tokyo Hotel and like Gennadius Fräulein and like Frosted Glass Coffin, are later plays of Tennessee's. And they're not the same kind of plays that the early projects like Streetcar and Glass Menagerie are. And consequently... Tennessee having, as all artists do, gone on to a new mode of writing and expression, uh, I think these late plays are very much ahead of their time. They're very difficult to do, they're very difficult to perceive, and in the hands of a, of a wrong director and a wrong producer, uh, the productions can indeed become failures. This is not to say that the plays are failures. Uh, you're saying that uh, pro- Producers and directors tend to uh, uh, interpret your new work uh, in the manner of the old, your earlier work, uh, which we're uh, 
Well, I almost think, guaranteed uh, success. I think mm-hmm. some of my uh, new work, you know, is just baffling to them, and they uh, you just uh, they read it, and something uh, intrigues them, perhaps. But then, when they get to uh, staging it, uh, they find that uh, you know it's difficult. Uh, it eludes to, them. It eludes them precisely. The same thing happened yeah. to Ibsen. One his most beautiful play, when we dead awaken was uh, not at all understood uh, when he tried to produce it. That's one of the Ibsen plays I haven't read. It's the last one uh, in a symbolic mm-hmm. play. But uh, I'm, I'm sort of completely fascinated now by the, by the whole idea that you should think of your writing as having had a successful period well, it is. I'm merely telling you um, what is an established fact. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the fact that uh, su- no, surprises no, me. Point. What? <laughs> it's not the uh, it's not the fact that surprises me. It's, well, uh, it didn't surprise me either. Tell you the truth, <laughs> <laughs> it's the pattern in America. Uh, the writers uh, they they have a period of success, and then. Uh, there is something instinctive in the critical world to start to... uh, They create a figure which is somewhat larger than its actual size, you know? And then they start trying to cut it down to what they think is its actual size. Sometimes they diminish it to the vanishing point. (laughs) (laughs) So that... uh, But uh, the reason I say I'm startled is that uh, prior to Streetcar and Glass Menagerie and Sweet Bird and uh, Cat and so on, there are many, many plays uh, uh, which were produced and uh, which, you know, I plays, read, most people read. professionally before Battle of Angels. That mm-hmm. was the first professional production. That was 1940. And then there was a hiatus from 1940 till 1944, which I had only one production, and that was in Pasadena Playhouse, and of course I got nothing for it. I was living, uh, you know, mm-hmm. as best I could, and uh, not uh, hardly well at all. <laughs> uh, could you tell us what the, the best you could was then? Well, I was running elevators, you know, and... Uh, and writing? Waiting on tables. I, uh, I'm very glad I had that experience, you know? Mm-hmm. I was usually on the graveyard shift between 12 and 7 in the morning. 12 at midnight and 7 in the morning, I mean, and so that I could <coughs> write uh, when I woke up at noon, you know? I know that there is the legend that you uh, you uh, wrote Glass Menagerie uh, <coughs> while uh, 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 working on the midnight, uh, graveyard shift and so on. Yeah. But, uh uh, well, no, a lot of people think I wrote The Glass Menagerie while, uh, on, while I was employed by MGM. This is <laughs> true. <laughs> that is true. I, uh, I wrote a lot while I was... Uh, I didn't write for films more than three weeks. I was given the, the assignment of writing a film for uh, Lana Turner. Which film? Uh, Marriage is a Private Affair, it was called. And I, uh, the producer was very sweet. He was... Uh, I've forgotten his name now, but he was very nice, and he happened to have some a certain um, attachment of a romantic nature with the lady. <laughs> but he was realistic <laughs> about her abilities as an actress, 
and he would keep saying, "Oh, this is this is beautiful stuff, Mister Williams," but she can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't know how to read it. <laughs> well, one one realistic producer that certainly Pedro Berman was his name certainly is a rarity. I would he think he was really sweet, really sweet man. He said, "Now, why don't you just forget all about this Hollywood business?" this uh, Hollywood screenwriting business and just go out Santa Monica come in we're obliged to pay you $250 a week just come in collect your check go back out to Santa Monica Beach and uh, do and, your own work he said because mm-hmm. your own work is good and that's when you began oh I began writing at 14 this, that was when no I, I meant the plays that became uh, so such immediate successes I uh I saved enough money so that I could spend the summer free of harassment and free of other occupation in Provincetown, and I wrote The Glass Menagerie there in Provincetown, and in, uh, of all places, the law school dormitory at Harvard. I had a friend there. <laughs> he allowed me. I get, uh, actually, the, the term success is sort of misleading. Uh, yeah. uh, we're using it so generally. Success is a... Uh, um, it's such a false word, yes. really. Uh, I think perhaps Andy Warhol can define it. <laughs> <laughs> it is what sells, isn't it? In his uh, exactly, and those plays uh, sort of uh, were sell. astonishing because it was a uh, there was a sort of major voice uh, in the American theater that appeared there, and uh, I'm sort of uh, startled, equally startled. <laughs> and everything you're saying seems to be startling me. To uh, for you to think that uh, at, at there's a point where your work, uh, that actually your work is less powerful. Uh, from my viewpoint and uh, the people I work with here, of course, that's uh, that's not. Let's so at say all. that the work becomes darker. Mm-hmm. It, it has become darker. Where would you? Uh, it began to become darker in the 60s. W- with what? Which and it play became would you so dark say? that people found it painful. And we're now in an escape, a particularly escapist period, and people want lighter and lighter things. And my work continues to get darker. Yes. W- 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 which play would you uh, say uh, I was the transition it, point? I think it became pretty dark. Uh, uh, in in the bar of a Tokyo hotel, you know. Bar of the Tokyo hotel. The slapstick tragedy is ex- very very funny. The two plays in that at least the second one, Ganesha's Freudlein, is very very funny, but it is uh, you know horrifying too. It has a gothic quality to it, grotesque comedy. But uh, that was incomprehensible to. Uh, people at the time when they didn't even see the humor in it. It's just so well, it too, it, it too is a play that was very much ahead of its time for, for its honesty and for its reality and uh, for the way it looks at life and pain and, and age. And it's very much ahead of its time and very honest. And I think Tennessee just now said something very, very right about his late plays, like Outcry, like In the Bar of a Tokyo Hotel. They are so honest and they are so real 
and especially in this era of economic unrest and so on, people want more and more escapism. They don't want to be told the truth, and they especially don't want to be told the truth about themselves. Exactly. Uh, of oh, what fears they have. Everyone has the fears that are expressed in this uh, They the certainly do. The fear of death, the fear of confinement. The, the fear and of privation eyes. And the public... Uh, public eyes are fastened on them. Indeed, yes. Mm. And also, of course, uh, uh, the, it seems to me that one of the... I've been discussing this a great deal at the station because we want to do programs on current lifestyle, that in the uh, later plays, of course, in Outcry, there are two characters, and it seems that more and more here in New York you see individual attempting to solve their lives by being solitary. Mm -hmm. That is, they will pull their lives together without no longer wanting a reference to the society or the community or a group at all. And that's, of course... You're referring to recluse personalities? Not recluse. Uh, essentially, people who think of themselves as autonomous and autonomous. There are is, certain people who are by nature autonomous in that they uh, are incapable of relating yes, to other people. Yes. They do on the surface, they do superficially, they appear to be relating. Yes. There's no inner commitment to another person yes. or other people. And that seems to be... Or uh, to society. Or to, no anything. to anything. Society. And that seems to be the pre predominant solution that people are taking in the late seven in the seventies, the mid seventies. So that There's I'm a particular withdrawal I've noticed in the seventies from social commitment. Yes. From so feeling any responsibility toward the society in which you live and the time in so which you live. So that I'm extreme I'm extremely amazed, you know, Bill, that uh, these are particularly the plays that you're interested in producing in uh at this time, when they seem to be, you know, running counter to the fact that everyone wants an escapist entertainment. Well, I'm uh, appalled by escapist entertainment. I find it boring as hell. And I'm also appalled by the the very thing that you just spoke about, Charles, and that is this incredible drive toward toward autonomy and toward cutting oneself off from the world and from other people. And, and saying one is all right. Right. And one of the magnificent things that this play, the two-character play, also known as Outcry, one of the most beautiful things that this play says to me is that you must not do that. And that's something that I feel very strongly. You cannot be alone. One of the best alone. lines in the play is uh, there's no such thing as an inescapable corner with two people in it. <laughs> <laughs> if there are two people and yeah. if you reach out to each other... Yeah, if you reach out... You can out overcome out. any obstacle. Well, yeah, you have escaped into the other person. Indeed. Yeah, from yourself, your solitary self. Indeed. W were you in accord, in agreement, in the way you read the play and then eventually produced it? Yes, Bill and I seem to have an almost uncanny uh, uh, sensibility, a uh, cord of sensibility. An affinity. Affinity yes. of sensibility. Because everything that I read in Tennessee's work, especially the later work, the, the fear and the panic and and especially being a director and an actor, the fear of eyes looking at you, 
I know these things deep inside my own guts because I've felt them all my life, yes. being a product of the society in which we all live. And I'm just overwhelmed by Tennessee's response to this, which is, stop, don't do that. Don't be solitary. Get out. I think Tennessee will agree with me that his great cry that comes through all his work is en avant, go ahead, go forward, go on with life, with whatever you're doing. Uh, in the last sequence of plays, uh, uh, right up to uh, 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 Moise, mm -hmm. uh, you've uh, dealt more and more with characters who uh, characters who felt compelled to talk about themselves yeah and yet uh, of course people trying to be comprehended by other people yeah and talking almost compulsively about themselves i find myself doing that i become very garrulous about myself if i have an audience <laughs> <laughs> But uh, on stage, uh, in Small Craft Warning, in uh, Outcry, Everybody and in a Tokyo Hotel. Yeah, talked about himself. Yes. Uh, I think, uh, yeah. Uh, that's a fault, actually. That should be... Uh, I saw a play that impressed me enormously in London. It was Harold Kinder's latest play, No Man's Land. And the four characters, they all, nobody talked exclusively about himself. Each person had uh, a scene in which he was a predominant talker. But there was a, you know, when he, uh, there was also a great interchange of communication among them. Although there was no real communication. What am I trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, no, I but you're pinpointing something extremely interesting. Of course, Pinter. Yeah. One thinks of uh, his characters essentially communicating non-verbal. One of the somehow. points he makes is that they don't, although yes. they talk a great deal and, and they deliver long soliloquies, they don't really reach each other. Yeah. No. Whereas mm -hmm. your characters, on the other Sometimes hand... Sometimes they do. I think maybe, I hope. Oh, they do indeed. They mm. do indeed. That's one of the beautiful things about two-character play, that indeed the brother and sister do finally reach each other. And Actually, there are no long soliloquies in it now, are there? No, Except not. at the very beginning, right. before she's ended. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm very interested in your bringing up Pinter, and of course uh, uh, the fact that your style... Mm. Uh, the the your you the wealth of your your um, your command of language the wealth of your imagery the power and sweep of your dialogues is a, is in my mind diametrically opposed to Pinter. Yes, we we write in almost totally different voice. Yes, yeah, and uh, and yet uh, our uh, view of life is seems to be fairly identical. <laughs> Which is curious, isn't it? Not that identical, though. Not if that identical. Perhaps I, perhaps I'm a little less uh, dark in my view of life than Pinter, although he writes more amusingly. <laughs> 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 He's very funny. But, but Bill, uh, you've uh, 
you seem to have committed yourself to sort of uh, producing these plays that you feel directing so them. I, am I, I miss? Uh, I never confusing wish, two terms. Yes. Yeah, well, it's, it's in America. There's quite a difference. They call the director the producer, don't they? In England. In England, I believe yes. they do. Mm. Um, the producer is a man like someone who will remain nameless for the moment, mm. um, who puts it together, gets the money, hires the director, the set designer, and. And suddenly arbitrarily it's an, post the closing notice. You, you know, right. It is essentially not at all uh, it involved not with the be, artistic uh, It should not be art involved product. with the artistic work. There is one notable producer in town who constantly insists on getting artistically involved with his productions and frequently ruins them for that reason. I don't know who that one could be. Mm. Well, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> going to. I can't <laughs> name him on the air. But the director is, is, is the one who takes the script and takes it from the printed page onto the stage. But tell me about your, your commitment to this, these uh, uh, late plays, as we've been calling them. Well, all I can say is that they strike me very much in my guts. Mm -hmm. And as a director, I have to work on my gut feelings and my gut emotions. And I read plays like this, and something inside me says, yes, I know he, what he's talking about. I know what he's saying. Was Tokyo Hotel the first? Yes, the first Tennessee Williams play that I directed. And um, I chanced to read it in a volume of plays of Tennessee's called Dragon Country. And I just immediately knew that it had something to say to me and it had something to say to the world. And I knew that it, it had been done in an unsuccessful production commercially. What was the difference? Why, why do you think it was unsuccessful? Oh, one can make all sorts of speculations. I did not no, see No, I mean in terms Broadway. of your, your own sensibility. Uh, uh, I think it was misdirected. It wasn't directed at all. The Which is even worse. Quit halfway through, mm -hmm. and I, who had reached a point of incoherency, tried to take over the direction, <laughs> and uh, it just happened. I mean, it just uh, opened. And and your own interpretation was. I don't know. That's a very interesting question about interpretation. Certainly one can always come up with some sort of overall interpretation of a play but i think the dire i think the mistake that many directors or people who call themselves directors make is in trying to have a quote interpretation and an quote, overview an overview rather than dealing as i try to with with every play but especially with tennessee's work to get the reality of the situation the reality of the characters what's really going on not my grandiose conception of what I think the play is about. Yes, or the meaning or whatever. Right, right. So, uh, but what specifically then led you into Tokyo Hotel as your first production? Because I read the play and I fell in love with it and I knew with, that... With what aspect? Uh, um, I, I see, I find it very hard to talk about that, you know. The you scene to, of uh, creation, wasn't it about that main thing? Yes, name? yes. And about, um, I think the people, uh, the uh, the wife and the artist in that really were two sides of one person. Of one person. One side was uh, 
a uh, man driven mad by passion to create, which was frustrated, you know. And the woman was, uh, as he described her, a compulsive bitch. <laughs> you know? Well, I think every I think every human being has that kind of two sided capacity, yes. especially an artist. And art artist artists are very lone, solitary people by nature. Any kind of creation, uh, with certain exceptions in the theatrical field. Creativity is a very lone process, so there's that on the one hand. On the other hand, as a human being, you want to get out in the world, you want to be gregarious, you want to have love affairs, you want to deal with the real world. So it's always a constant battle for an artist. And that, that I think, is what struck me most about In the Bar of a Tokyo Hotel. And from then, from that play, you went to produce Outcry? Uh, well, with a, a hiatus of a couple of years. Um, you keep working more or less continually, don't you, Bill? I work a lot, yes. Mm. Um, I also have a straight job for a living. Do you? Since theater has not seen fit to support me as yet. Mm. But, but can, can we I, all go through can that. Can I ask you, the questions I guess I'm trying to get at is what seminal what the initial spark is that sort of the, you know then commits you to producing the play I and don't bringing know. it on stage. I, I really don't know um, it as I say I, I I find it very difficult to talk about any play conceptually and I I really don't know what the process is that when I read a play, I say, I want to direct this play. I want to see it come alive on stage. I don't know what the process is. It, it, it's so hidden in my guts and my psyche that I really can't bring it to the surface. I just know that when I read a script, like when I read the published version of Outcry, I said, my God, this is beautiful. It's got to be done. How, how could it not have been successful on Broadway? How could... How could anybody who even remotely calls himself a director not make this a stunning success? Oh, yeah. I, I felt the same way about Small Craft Warning and all the other places. Can we discuss the production since we're, the actors are going to come in and we'll do a, a taping? As I always do when I direct a play, my first loyalty is always to the author and to the play that he wrote, not, as I said, to some grandiose conception that I might have to feed my own ego. And again... I knew that um, Outcry had not been successful in production. And I loved the play, and I wanted to put on stage the play that Tennessee wrote. And then as I researched the Broadway production and heard more and more about it, I, I knew more and more why it was not successful. And I just was determined to do a successful production of what I think is a very brilliant play. The uh, It was unsuccessful because they wanted to make it a psychological drama of uh, character conflict and... I don't really know what they might have had in mind when they did that production on Broadway. I do know they did things like... Um, there are a number of references in the script to sunflowers, and I understand they that... huge projections on the back wall, you know? That just it took it overtook everything. They weren't necessary, unfortunately. I, shan't, uh, I don't blame it on the gentleman who designed it. He's a dear friend of mine, a very sweet, wonderful man. But he was encouraged in this, I think. 
you know. Would they fell into a 60s uh, style? I think so. I think so. Everything had to be literally shown, you know. They were in a prison. There had to be bars, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. with trapped figures in it, a projected uh, and mm -hmm. with trapped figures in it, a projected uh, and huge size in the back wall of the set on the cyclorama. But you see, to my mind, to my mind, even these, even these, what we are calling later plays. When I read it, it seems to me that they're so good and so straightforward, really, that all one has to do as a director is follow the script that this brilliant author has given you, and you don't need extraneous sunflower projections or piano music or a lot of props. If you just do it very cleanly and, and be true to the script... That's all one has to do. Well, Bill, you're you're bringing up, of course, uh, the the big co co controversy uh, that I have in my own mind, and that is somehow there seems to be two concept of theater now. One which is sort of uh, nonverbal, if you wish to call it that, and the other uh, is, of course, the theater where language does perform the function of communicating uh, more than all that language can communicate to an audience. Mm -hmm. And that that's... Uh, is, is that how you produce the play? I don't know that I understand your question quite. I know that the... the that is letting the language do the work as opposed to uh, using, you know, projections, this, uh, light, uh, light there work. There was great uh, subtlety in interpretation by the perform the director and the performers, you know. Mm -hmm. They worked as an ensemble with the exquisite, uh, you know... Uh, sense of each uh, what each other wanted what they could what they were working on there was a unity in there right. concept uh, you don't like the word concept but I have <laughs> a synonym right now no. but I think I know what you're driving at Charles and I think I can a answer you this way certainly the language in the play is exquisitely crafted and and beyond beautiful But one of the beautiful things about Tennessee's work is that beyond the beautiful language, there is a reality and a humanity to the situation, to the characters, to their fears and their likes and their dislikes and their moments of panic. And that is what I wish to have come out on the stage in terms of the language. Certainly language alone, words alone, do nothing because you can... Uh, There are many, many productions that go by where the actors go on stage and they say their lines, and no matter how beautiful the lines are, nothing else comes through. Yes, we're, yes there are many examples. But there are certain... Of, uh, I, there, I saw one production on Broadway of one of these nonverbal, modern, experimental things, which shall also remain nameless. Um, an author who has a tremendous cult following and has done things all over the world. And I could only take it for about 10 minutes, and I had to get up and leave, because I just could not stand the onslaught on my sensibilities. And I think plays of language and of communication and of real feelings and real emotions um, 
will always be with us, and they had better always be with us. Yes, yeah, so the developing, uh, the development of a character mm-hmm. uh, on the stage. Uh, uh, t- Tennessee, I, I, I guess I'd, I'd really like to have your reaction to this production. It was one of brain. the. Uh, I uh, I find that my great happiness in the theater now is not on Broadway, but off Broadway and off of Broadway. I mean, there's not the uh, the financial uh, responsibility hanging over your head. You you don't feel that it's three hundred sixty thousand dollars riding on something that you you know you've written, <laughs> and uh, you don't think it should be. Uh, uh, you don't think it should that it should the, the money thing should be that all, but it is there, and that's what the producers are thinking about. You know, mm-hmm. uh, okay, we're making money here in Boston, but we'll be, we'll be making it uh, in Washington for seven weeks and things like considerations of that nature impinge too much, and I will never write for Broadway again, except I have this one commitment to myself to complete a play in which Anthony Quinn was so brilliant recently, The Red Devil Battery Sign. I will compete, complete that one. But it's the only uh, play you know, Quinn couldn't work off Broadway. You know, certain big stars, they just can't work off Broadway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, a Cadillac, a limousine has to pick them up and take them to the theater, wait there, all during the performance, take them back to their Park Avenue hotel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's just part of their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. They cannot abandon that because they feel they will be abandoning mm-hmm. the prestige to which, uh, you know... But by contrast, what, what sort of experience was, was this working with Bill? Oh, it was just uh, intimate uh, cast, as you. uh, I felt uh, deeply concerned for them because I didn't feel that they were getting the material rewards, you know, that their artistry deserved. And uh, I, uh, you know, one could sit and weep about it, but that does no good, Mm -hmm. and they don't want that. Does it make you feel? Closer to the both the production and the play from having worked so closely with a small group of people yes. versus now, a large production. I'll tell you, production. a playwright who has an ideal situation. He's a friend of mine. I like him very much. I'm talking about Langford Wilson and the perennial Hollow Baltimore. Now he has a company. It's not a sacred repertory company. They call it. Uh, I think they're subsidized, aren't they? They have grants, yes. They get get grants. I'm afraid they're not doing important work, though. From the... And yet they are getting the grants. Now, uh, Mr. Lynch here is not getting grants, and yet he's sticking his neck out and not getting any payment for it, I don't suppose. No. Why are not the people interested in advancing American drama giving the grants to the right people? Would you, had you complete choice, want to work with a repertory company and I write would for indeed. one? Indeed, it would be it would be a dream come true if it was Mr. Lynch's uh, repertory company. I wouldn't <laughs> want to work for Malcolm. What's his name? Uh, 
No, let's not slander. I know who you. I know but, who you mean. But he, I just wouldn't want to work for that. Well, I like him company. too. And when I was a stage manager, I worked for the yeah. gentleman, you're, for the director you're talking about. Yeah. And he's a brilliant director for the right kind of a thing. realistic play of the late forties and early fifties type, wouldn't you say? I would say. I don't yes. think he goes beyond uh, that in uh, his. Um, and his insights. Do, do you feel that there's a lack of good plays in these companies? There is a definite lack because there's no outlet for... Uh, you, you say there's lack of good plays generally in America. Yes. There is indeed you, a lack You of feel them. that strongly. Otherwise, they'd be produced. I'm sure they'd find production. Do you think that your own work, uh, if you and Bill had a repertory company, do you think your own work would change, go in another direction? No. You would I would find be allowed to follow freedom? the direction that was natural to me, I'm sure. But uh, You're not, I would never adjust myself to the character of the repertory company. No, I couldn't. Nor the performers. The performers would have to be, you know, as gifted as Mary Ellen Flynn and as Bob Staddle. He's a brilliant. Uh, I, I thought he was going to be too fat at first, <laughs> but he took the weight off, didn't he? Yes, he I did. I always think I've done an actor a favor when I tell him he's too fat. And he takes <laughs> the weight off because then he thanks me. Then you know, he says, uh, "Thank you for taking, telling me." What aspect of his interpretation did you particularly? Uh, well, he's just a very fine actor. With. He's just a very, very his fine technique. and sensitive actor. What? His general, his technique as an actor. Oh, he's technically superb. His timing and everything is superb. And Mary Ellen Flynn happens to, you know, she's got that marvelous mercurial quality that great actresses have. I don't know why she, uh, one doesn't uh, see her except off of Broadway. Do you see her in Pizzell? Well, she was in Hot El Baltimore for a while. Well, that's not really... But that's, yeah. Well, it's at least well, commercial theater. And it's at commercial least, theater, yes. At least you get a paycheck at the end of the Good. week. Yeah. Now, otherwise, how does she live? She works in advertising. She has um, her own business. With, oh, her own business? With partners. I'm so happy to hear that, that she has, a, you know, something to support. Oh, I she's... Well, all of us, all of us who work off off Broadway, naturally, uh, there is no money off off Broadway. There should be, though. Of course, there should be. And I would the, be. The grants are not going the right direction. I would be delighted to have a repertory company, and I would be delighted to make a living at what I do best, which is, I think, direct. Mm. And when I do have a repertory company, which I will have some way or another. But if you continued to produce only Tennessee Williams' later doctor works, do you think the repertory company would be successful? I think I think ultimately it would be. I don't think I would do only the late plays. There are some of the early plays, early plays that, I, well, that I very much want to do. Yeah, yeah. Someday I want to do Streetcar, not right away. Yeah. I want to do a revival, as we've spoken about, in the spring of um, either The Eccentricities of a Nightingale or Summer and Smoke. Mm -hmm. um, I want to do inf if you really want to know the truth ultimately I would like to direct every play you've ever written <laughs> and that's well. sort of what I have in the back of my mind mm -hmm. because as a director when I work on plays that are so good and so layered and so rich and so I, well crafted I it, tell you Bill once you cre you created this repertory company 
uh, you would define the new works, new writers coming to you. Yeah. Well, there are very good writers around. I'm sure there are. Yeah. And I, especially among the blacks, I should think. The, uh, the I black am, theater is very much alive. Yeah. Very much alive. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that if uh, Bill were to have a repertory company doing uh, your plays, you might end up writing comedies <laughs> just from the sheer bliss uh, of the situation? Oh, no. No, it wouldn't affect my yeah. <laughs> temperament, I don't think. I think most of my work has comedy in it anyway. Yes. A somber yeah, comedy. Enough but, uh, comedy to amuse people who can take that kind of comedy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Of course, I have a limited audience, I know that. That's why I was asking you. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, I, I don't know. I don't think the audience really is limited, because even in something, even in something like out, Outcry, two-character play, uh, if people would only for five seconds be honest enough to admit. But they're not honest enough. Well, then it's up to us to make them admit it, to do more productions like this, honest productions of good plays, and, and, and force people to wake up. One of, the reasons why, one of the reasons why Brecht is so unsuccessful in this country is that he too tells the truth. And people, as we know and as we've said, Brecht don't uh, want tells to what he conceives of as uh, a political truth. Mm-hmm. Don't you think that has a lot to do with his unpopularity? He's considered a communist. I suppose he was a communist. He was yes, a communist. That, uh, that in itself would uh, make him a persona non grata, not mm-hmm. bitter. I'm not a communist. I'm just a revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all are. I think we all are. <laughs> Most of us, but even in terms of even in terms, I don't want to get this into a discussion of Brecht. But even in terms of Brecht's political realities, he was driving at something beyond that. He was driving at a human reality. I saw an East German production. You're probably right. I thought, mm. I saw an East German German production of Three Penny Opera, and oh, it was so real. It was so real and so so human and beyond the fact that he was making a political statement about the oppression of the lower classes he they did it with such yeah. integrity that you could see and feel mm. in your guts yes that's what it's like to be an oppressed member of the lower class mm. mother courage mm-hmm. yeah. mother courage and seagull are my two favorite modern please i don't know what that means you said earlier bill that uh, you were planning other productions uh, what is your ne- what are your plans for the immediate future? For the immediate future, right now I want to take a rest. Naturally, much. Um, Tennessee and I have spoken the other night about two of his new plays that I would very much like to do, and I'm going to work very hard to get an intelligent, clear-headed, clear-sighted professional producer to produce them. And that's my immediate plan. Which plays are you referring to specifically? A, a pair of one-act plays under the joint title uh, The Carré, which is uh, the uh, old quarter of New the Orleans. The Vieux and New Orleans. Yeah. They're and both laid in the Vieux Carré, otherwise there's no connection between them any more than there was between uh, the two plays in Garden District, mm-hmm. which is also New Orleans. 
And I'm looking forward to going down to New Orleans and soak up the atmosphere. I wish you would, yeah, because I think that's, I think you have to visit, you know. Oh, I intend to. I will uh, indeed. The old quarter, to know it. I've always been in love with the idea of New Orleans, and, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing the reality. Mm. Yeah, well, you know. I uh, hope you get down there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do the plays anyway if you can get the producer. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, thank you very much. You've been listening to Charles Ruas interviewing Tennessee Williams and Bill Lynch, the director of Tennessee Williams' later plays. The interview was recorded by Dave Marks.